what you see in the Israeli security establishment right now is a real concern that the more the Palestinian populace is drained of any hope on the horizon, the more likely it is that there is going to be a descent into violence. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah Wildman, FP's print editor, and you're listening to The ER. With me is Ben Soloway, FP's associate editor, and joining us in the studio is Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project, an institute focused on advancing a mutually dignified resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Daniel previously headed up Middle East and North Africa programs at the European Council on Foreign Relations and at the New America Foundation. But Daniel's origins start not in our wonky think tank world, but at the negotiating table. He was a member of the official Israeli delegation to the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks, both at Taba under Prime Minister Ehud Barak and Oslo B under the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Daniel and Ben, thank you for joining me. We've now come to the end of Donald Trump's first year in office, and in that time, it seems we've seen a fundamental shift in U.S. policy towards the Middle East generally and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more specifically. While Trump has promised to make the, quote, ultimate deal in the region and has been quickly set his own son-in-law, Jared Kushner, as well as his former lawyer, Jason Greenblatt, on the task, late in 2017, he seemed to dramatically reset the terms of negotiations when he announced the U.S. would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and promised the U.S. embassy would soon be moved to the holy city. The Palestinian leadership cried foul and announced the U.S. would no longer be seen as an honest broker in peace negotiations. And meanwhile, members of the Israeli leadership began talking openly about annexation of settlements in the West Bank. But even before Trump's controversial Jerusalem declaration, the U.S. president seemed to tweak American policy by appearing to question long-established dogma on what's known as the two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That is the creation of an independent Palestinian state alongside the Jewish one. The president worried doves in the region when he nominated an ambassador who was seen as a champion of the settlements themselves, and Trump seemed to waver as well on whether the presence and growth of settlements in the West Bank had any impact at all on the future of peace. Daniel, was the two-state solution alive even before Trump took office? Have these motions changed the negotiations, and is it alive now? I think things that have been done by human agency can be undone by human agency when it's not we're not talking about someone who's dead and can't be resurrected so it's not an exact science whether two states is irretrievable or retrievable i think what one can say is that the direction of travel is to make a mutually acceptable two-state outcome ever less likely given the Israeli settlement policy, given the degree of Israeli control, and the other things that we've been following over the years. There seemed to be an American commitment to a certain outcome which was backed up by UN resolutions, was backed up by an international consensus, had occasionally come close to an agreement in negotiations between the parties, and that was a a certain two-state outcome based on what are called the 1967 lines. Jerusalem would be the capital of two states. There would be perhaps minor land swaps, some addressing of the Palestinian refugee question. Previous U.S. administrations did not, conspicuously did not, use the leverage they have on Israel, and these are not 
two symmetrical parties. There's an occupying power and an occupied people. So throughout the peace process, America could never carry Israel over the finishing line. But there was at least a common sense of what the end game might have to look like. That has fundamentally changed under the Trump administration, the Jerusalem move being the most dramatic manifestation of that fundamental change. Now, it may be that things can be pulled back, at least in terms of the goal to the status quo ante, but it could also be that the Trump administration now acts as an accelerant, puts its foot on the accelerator of those very trends which were making two states more unlikely anyway. And I think there is one group at least for whom they are in a hurry and the Trump administration is all about making as irreversible as possible the eclipse of the two-state option, and that is the, the, the Israeli right who seem to share an agenda with, I think, the most dominant actor in the Trump administration on this file, the ambassador to Israel who you referred to earlier, who has a history of support for the settlements, David Friedman. You were in the room in the negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians seemed closest. What happened to derail it at that moment? And what would it have taken then to reach that agreement? And what sort of American leadership, how much did the American leadership actually make a difference at that time? I think America has made a difference. When the so-called final status issues, the the issues that would have to be closed in order to reach a two-state deal, were addressed under President Clinton, if people remember, there was the Camp David summit in July of the year 2000, Ehud Barak, Yasser Arafat, I wasn't there, but I think there you saw... despite the goodwill, the American peace team getting it wrong and being too willing, as one of the team, Aaron Miller, later wrote uh, in his book, to be Israel's lawyer. Only later on that year did the Americans put out a plan, which was known as the Clinton Parameters, around which we negotiated, where where I I did participate at Taba. The Americans weren't there. And I think it's far from inevitable that we would have reached an agreement at Tabor under other political circumstances. But the circumstances at Tabor was that the Israeli prime minister was already a political dead man walking. We were two weeks away from an election, which the polls so categorically saw him as losing that he pulled back, actually, from those negotiations in the end. So both sides said we'd come closer than ever, and it was the Israeli side that put a stop to it. The other time we got very close... Remind us what year that was. This was in in January 2001. So this is six months after Camp David. The second intifada is in in full swing. Uh, The other time that one possibly got close was uh, under Prime Minister Olmert. But again, this happens when Olmert is already... uh, politically finished, actually, in Israel. At no stage, though, and I think this is, this is crucial, at no stage did you have an American commitment to use its political muscle to try and get the Israeli side to perhaps do things they wanted to do some of some Israeli leaders have been known to comment that 
it was almost like my hand. I wanted my hand to be behind my back for the Americans to carry me there. That's the only way I could I could do it and sell it. What you have today is fundamentally different, both in terms of the American approach and in terms of where the Israeli leadership is at. The current Israeli governing coalition has made absolutely clear that there is no reasonable two-state outcome that is at all in the ballpark of what was previously discussed and negotiated that they would accept. Even though Netanyahu himself has said he would support a two-state solution, his coalition would not support it as it once looked. Well, it's important to understand a few things on that, Sarah. Uh, uh, as, as you say, Netanyahu has used the term two states and has, has suggested he would accept it and said, said as much. He's also said the opposite. So depending on what day you ask him, what audience he is in front of, he might say, I'm for two states, or he might say, there can't be a Palestinian state. It's a state minus, first of all. Uh, second of all, this has never been adopted as the policy of the Likud. Netanyahu's governing party or the policy of the Israeli government. It's interesting that the international community has demanded that Hamas, for instance, have to accept Israel, have to accept two states before they can be brought into any process. Not a demand made of Israel, not a demand made of the Israeli government, not a demand made of Prime Minister Netanyahu. I think Netanyahu's position on two states is the following, and I think it accords with the new administration in Washington. What we are offering the Palestinians, we, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Israeli government, falls far short of what would normally be considered a state. And often he talks about state minus. It doesn't have actual sovereignty. It doesn't control its own security. It doesn't have territorial viability. It doesn't have control of its resources, etc., etc. If the Palestinians want to call what is essentially a Bantustan situation, a state, then why should I be the guy who says, no, 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 it's not a state. So he is asking the Palestinians to call something that is not a state, a state, and that he is willing to accept. The Israeli defense minister <clears throat> uh, uh, of recent times, who's no longer in that position, but served under Netanyahu, Bugi Yalon, he actually said, look, if they want to call it the Palestinian Empire, they can call it the Palestinian Empire as far as I'm concerned. The truth is it won't be a state. So, no, Bibi Netanyahu does not see Palestinian statehood in the terms in which anyone else would recognize it as such. I think we're curious now that even the rhetoric of the two-state solution seems to have been largely abandoned. What are the various real end solutions that the stakeholders in play are now pushing for in absolute brief what are the what are the different ways forward possibly look like? And, and before I do want to note that Daniel used a term relating to South Africa that is considered controversial, but has been used more and more by people on the left. And even uh, today, uh, we are in February, and today by the publisher of Haaretz. So, uh, but you can continue. Yeah, and I, I think that's very important, and that's where Trump as an accelerant is an interesting thing to be following. Very briefly, 1967 is. Let's just start with 67 rather than go back earlier. Israel takes control of these territories. For the first quarter of a century, Israel controls the territories with its military, sets up a civil administration. The Palestinians are still recovering from 67. Next quarter of a century, we have the Oslo management mechanism. Whether it was intended as such or not, Oslo creates a limited Palestinian self-government called the Palestinian Authority that becomes co-opted 
as part of the status quo. And the territories are managed in this way without actual Palestinian freedom, independence, etc. And I think that era is drawing to a close. And the question is, what will be uh, the next iteration of what happens in those territories? One option is, and I think it's the option that there is the most, the broader consensus around in Israel, is for 50 years, one has created tools for managing this. We will find either a new tool for managing this, for managing the Palestinians without them having rights, or tweak the old tools. So I think that's the most likely, as Israelis see it, continued management. The logic of where this is going is to formalize an apartheid reality. Over a decade ago, you had Israeli former prime ministers Barak and Olmert saying, the reason we have to have a Palestinian state is that if we carry on this way, it will become South Africa apartheid. A decade later, where the situation has got exponentially worse, it's very hard not to see a legitimacy in using that terminology. So one is a formalization, another is a formalization of apartheid. There's, there is almost an, an expulsionist logic to the direction of travel. Because if you're going to permanently control those territories, but you don't want to give the Palestinians rights, then could you see a second expulsion of the Palestinians? Or Israel having created one political space, irreversibly so, do you see a Palestinian struggle for equal rights, a non-violent civil resistance movement, which is normally referred to as one state or one democratic state? And I do want to point out again that these are controversial terms, especially in the American Jewish community, which rejects them for the most part. I think Michelle Goldberg uh, described this in a very useful way. She's a, a, a New New York Times columnist. She wrote a piece on the death of liberal Zionism. And she said, so I'm paraphrasing here, supporters of, the Israeli, uh, of Israel don't like it when the term apartheid is used. But how else do you describe a situation of separate and unequal, a situation where one group of people have one set of rights and another group of people a very different and secondary set of rights. Let's move on. You talked about nonviolent civil disobedience in the Palestinian territories. And, and this, the story that's really dominated the headlines in Israel over the last few months is that of Ahed Tamimi, a 16-year-old girl who lives in the town of Nabi Saleh, who was captured on video slapping an Israeli soldier and was taken into custody. What do you think that story has had has really attracted the attention of, of Israelis? And, and what do you think the story tells? I mean, remember, this girl has been has grown up not in the first or second generation uh, living in the territories, but but really in the third or, I mean, maybe she's even the fourth at this point. She lives in a town which has argued over our water usage and land rights with a local settlement. And in a way, uh, it seems like her story has come to embody something and take on an imagery that ha- has had a lot of resonance in ways that other stories of civil disobedience have not. I wonder if what you think of the Tamimi story and, and why Israelis have paid attention to it and what you think the message is of this girl's sort of small act having you know, bigger waves. Well, as you say, this is, this is a, a Palestinian village, Nabi Saleh. Uh, land has been confiscated by settlements, olive groves have been taken, um, and they've led a non-violent struggle. Uh, the Tamimi family is a large family. The, the, the village and the family uh, largely overlap. Her Members of her family have been killed. Other members have been imprisoned. The immediate backdrop to the incident with the soldiers was her cousin getting uh, shot. 
it was a photogenic situation. But I think what it more importantly speaks to is that it will resonate with Americans. The power of nonviolent civil disobedience, civil resistance, I, I don't think one can call slapping a soldier an act of violence when one thinks of the violence committed by the heavily armed um, Israeli side on members of her village and her family. And what that tends to be is you hold up a mirror to your oppressor. Now, I don't think it's had a dramatic effect in Israeli society, but you multiply what Ahed Tamimi did day in, day out, tenfold, weeks, months, holding up that, the inevitability of the violent response, holding up that mirror, and perhaps enough Israelis will humanize Palestinians in a way that they have been so dehumanized in Israel for so long. There is, which, which this also is, is a part of, uh, there is a terrible abuse that goes on with Palestinian child detainees. And I think the, the comparison also has to be drawn to the way Israeli Jewish settler children and Israeli Jewish right-wing activists especially are, are treated, are handled when they are violent with Israeli soldiers, when outposts are occasionally removed or when soldiers interpose themselves uh, between Israelis who are sometimes uh, burning uh, Palestinian olive groves. What has happened to Ahed Tamimi never happens to those uh, settler children under similar circumstances. I do want to point out that there was a, a there have been a, a series of dramatic stabbings as well in the West Bank. So it's not only nonviolence. Uh, there was a, no, Nabi no. Saleh yeah. is known for the nonviolent struggle. The Ahed Tamimi case is a case par exemple of nonviolence. Thanks for clarifying that. Is there any other actor on the world stage who could step in as mediator uh, given this current questions around the U.S. role? And who would that be? Would it be, the, would it be Germany? Would it be the European Union? Is there somebody else that could step in and play a role as a mediator between Israelis and Palestinians that is not doing so, that would like to do so, or is that sort of pie-in-the-sky hope? To follow up on that, can you speak to the narrative that the U.S. has abdicated from its position as mediator under Trump? I don't think there is uh, anyone with the appetite or who would be accepted by the Israeli side to be an alternative mediator. There was an attempt 15 years ago to circumvent in some ways or augment American exclusivity, American monopoly. A body called the Quartet was established, which included Russia, uh, the U representative of the UN Secretary General, the European Union, and the Americans. That went nowhere. It was largely dismissed by the Israelis. So I don't think the issue really is does one need an alternative mechanism? Uh, I, I think the answer to the alternative to the Americans, when the American position has largely self-marginalized in terms of actually achieving a deal, is the parties themselves, and, and especially the agency on the Palestinian side, who they're not going to have their freedom handed to them. People struggle for their freedom, and people on the outside tend to mobilize more actively when they see a struggle that they want to identify with, not just a plight um, that they want to identify with. What you have seen, which is significant, 
is a U.S. position, which I think the Israeli governing coalition sees as a win-win. Either the Americans try through financial threats, other threats, and through some financial inducements that are being dangled, either they get the Palestinians to basically drop their national aspirations, drop their aspiration to being fully enfranchised uh, citizens of some state, and they get the Palestinians to embrace this apartheid reality, or in not doing so, you blame the Palestinians. Do you see any option where, I mean, now, you know, John Kerry, right before he left office, warned of a one-state reality forming. And that concept, that phrase has been used a fair amount. And obviously, his idea of a one-state reality was not a positive one. Is there any one-state positive solution where everyone's a citizen? I, I, I don't know. Is that something anybody would want? Does, 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 does it work in America? You have people of different ethnicities, and they all are citizens of one country. I say that somewhat facetiously. It is clearly not an outcome that the vast majority of Israelis want. But the dynamic on the Palestinian side is different, but one should also acknowledge that the Palestinian national movement wants an independent state. It doesn't want to share one state with the Israelis. You look at the polling and more Palestinians, especially younger Palestinians, are saying that once one state with equality is not just the fallback for many of them, it's actually the preferred option. You don't go overnight from two states to one state. The direction of travel is that two states is becoming impossible. Hasn't the majority of polling among Israelis <clears throat> always been that the vast majority of people would like two states still, even if the leadership has moved in a different direction, or is that still not true? It's very wobbly, because once you dig into the details, mm -hmm. it doesn't come close to what is necessary. It doesn't mean it, it, it can't be done, as, as I said at the very beginning. What has been done can be undone. I know you're short on time, and I don't want to keep you too long, but I'm, I'm curious about two more things. We've gone in a tough direction. I want to know, does rhetoric matter? I mentioned at the beginning that Trump has changed language. He talked at the beginning of his administration about whether or not settlements were an obstacle to peace. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not helpful, he said at some point. I'm paraphrasing. Does rhetoric matter, and what happens with that kind of messaging, and how does that affect the kind of place I want to get us to, which is the possibility of, of hope. We've, we've talked about a number of dark options. And if we are talking about some possibility of a better future for both peoples, whatever that looks like, how does that kind of messaging help or not help? How does it hurt or not hurt? And really, if you could bring us to any place that is in any way hopeful, if you can't, then that's, I'm not going to force that. The absence of hope is actually a contributing factor to insecurity. What you see in the Israeli security establishment right now is a real concern that the more the Palestinian populace is drained of any hope on the horizon, including because of the things done by the US administration, the more likely, whether individuals or in a more organized fashion, 
it is that there is going to be a descent into violence. Violence begets violence, etc. The policies are just as important as the rhetoric. So the policies of defunding UNRWA, which provides for Palestinian refugees, is also destabilizing the Jerusalem move, the indulgence of the most unreasonable of the, of, of the policies on the Israeli side. The hope is that on the Palestinian side, hopelessness actually translates into an abandonment of failed strategies and a way of asserting in a constructive, non-violent way their right to dignity and that that in turn sets in motion a recalibration on the Israeli side. Because actually you need to respect your adversary in order to take them seriously and to rethink how you're positioning yourself vis-a-vis -vis your adversary. And I think that that respect has been lost on the Israeli side for the Palestinian leadership for many different reasons. So I think that, you know, it's interesting. The peace process began off the back of the first intifada. Now, the first intifada, people tend to forget, was an unarmed intifada in very large measure. There's a film just, just been made, Nyla and the Uprising on the First Intifada. A group of Israelis was shown the film. Many of them were moved to tears because they remembered serving at that time and how powerful it was to be confronted by Palestinians demanding their rights in a nonviolent way. It can bring out the best in people when you look and you, and you say, I can identify with that. And I think that's not inconceivable. The journey that a lot of the Israeli body politic, and it's reflected in the population, has taken toward a very narrow ethno-nationalist sense of what kind of a country they want to be, how one treats the other, is not unique to Israel. There are journeys going on elsewhere in the world, in Europe, in parts of the United States. That doesn't mean that that's a linear journey in one direction that can't be turned around. And I think it can be turned around in many places and it can also be turned around in Israel. And it may begin, and, and this I would leave you with as, as, a, as a hopeful thought, it may begin with the 20% of the Israeli population, I'm not talking about the, the occupied territories now, the 20% of the Israeli population who are Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, whose rights are being more infringed now, there's legislation to curtail their rights further, they are pushing back, they are launching what looks increasingly like a civil rights struggle inside Israel, and that may find a resonance among the Israeli Jewish population in ways that could create new fault lines that then have a knock-on effect onto the Palestinians in the territories also. How does that affect leadership? On both sides, there have been longtime leaders that people aren't happy with. And are you talking about a, a grassroots movement to change that leadership or a grassroots movement that changes hearts and minds on the ground and ultimately sways the body politic? Oh, one is related to the other. I think 
yes, a leader can come along that galvanizes something that wasn't there before. But you can also have grassroots movements that that then demand that a leader, that leadership be generated from that. I do think leadership is incredibly important. I think one of the most effective political assassinations in history, actually, was the assassination by a right-wing Jewish Israeli extremist of Yitzhak Rabin in 1995. In derailing the peace process. Very much so. A few days after Daniel Levy left our studio and headed back to London, there was actually a significant development in a year-long investigation into Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister. The Israeli police recommended to the attorney general of Israel that the prime minister be indicted on fraud, breach of trust, and bribery. So we put Daniel Levy back on the phone to ask, what does this impending indictment mean for Israel and what might it potentially mean for the Israeli peace process and for Israel-U.S. relations? Well, first one has to be clear on the process that will now be pursued. The police recommendation, although in many ways unprecedented, does not automatically translate into the attorney general actually pursuing an indictment and a case against the sitting prime minister. That will take some months for the attorney general to work through and make a determination. Assuming, which is not a given, the Attorney General did go through with an indictment, that would pose an immediate question and challenge for Netanyahu's own party and his own coalition. It is clear that his political allies have decided to stand with him despite the police recommendation. And that was known in advance. And, ha- and how do we know that? How do we know that? Who has said that exactly? Because my sense was that there were people waiting in the wings to kind of step in, though he said 